Hey guys, welcome to The Strength Connection. I'm Michael Krakowski. I'm here to connect you with the top minds in the world of strength to share stories, insights, and experiences to help you become stronger every day. I am so pumped to reconnect with this guy today. He is one of my favorite people to dive into the world of athletics and sports performance training. Antonio Scolante from California joins me today on the podcast. So Antonio, he's the former director at Velocity Performance and coach of the Juventus Academy. And currently he serves as a researcher in strength and conditioning for the University of Southern California. And I've talked to Antonio numerous times before, but this one was seriously special. He has been crazy busy since the last time we spoke, currently adapting the work of Dr. Verdashansky and special strength training for sport into three different courses that are gonna be delivered for the first time worldwide in English. And we dove into all of the details behind that. So Antonio is he's in the trenches every day working on the real science behind power, strength, and athletic development. And we got to dive into periodization, the importance of looking at rep speed over other factors, and also some of the most overrated exercises in strength development. So if you wanna see more of Antonio's work after this, I would suggest going to the NSCA site and searching him, or you can follow him on Instagram at Antonio Scolante. All right, lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe so you can catch all new episodes that I drop every single week. So without further ado, we'll get on with the show. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you on the inside. All right, Antonio, buongiorno, brother. How are you? Buongiorno, good to see you again. Absolutely. Oh, dude, it's so good to see you. So it's uh, it's been a while. I know it's been a, at least like six months or so since we, we chatted last time. You've been a busy guy. I think so. Yeah, definitely six months or more. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Yeah, no, it's great to see you. So I said, I I said right before we record, I always love talking to you because I get to put on my athletic performance and kind of strength and conditioning hat again, and to know all the work that you've done from you know training and coaching, but also the research that you're doing. Um, it's always a blast, and I know you've got some really cool things that you're working on, and we're gonna. We're going to dive into a lot of different areas, I think, here. I'm going to try and keep it as focused as possible so I don't scatter everybody in uh, listenership. But um, first off, I want to say you've got a big weekend coming up, SFG1. Yes. Yeah. Finally. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Um, so, oh, you got to be pumped up and excited for this. I know this has been a, lo- this been a couple of years coming since you first really registered with this. Yeah, I actually, um, I chose my first event uh, back in 2019, I think, Strong First. Uh, started this short one-day type of uh, events mm-hmm. where they were teaching you just the very basics of kettlebell training. Yes. And I wanted to do mine with, with Fabio because Fabio was coming to uh, to San Diego to teach one. Mm-hmm. And that happened right on at the beginning of the pandemic in Italy. So he couldn't, he couldn't fly. We're, right. we're still open here. So the course still happened. And that's how I met Annalisa. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't come. And from that point on, I've been waiting to do the level one uh, somewhere mm-hmm. in a driving distance because I can't take too much time away from work, unfortunately. Right. And this one is in San Diego, so it's like a couple of hours away. So crossing fingers, this weekend is going to be a great weekend. Oh, that's going to be perfect. So yeah, how's your? Tra- I mean, have you been training for it consistently, like over this time, like just kind of keeping the skills going, or have you ramped it up a bit? Dude, I have three kettlebells in my living room. I do kettlebell like I just pick them up and let's go for it. Turkish get-ups, swings, presses. I don't have every one. I think the heaviest one I have is 40 kilos at home. Okay. But I mean, it's good enough to work on technique, you know? And then when I when I have time to go to the gym, I pick up like some heavier kettlebells when I need to. Awesome. Awesome. Oh yeah. Level one is so fun because it's such a deep dive into all the foundational pieces that you do. And then everything else on top of that is great, but it's like kind of building the 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 different structures. This is all the foundational work of it. So oh, you're going to have a blast with it. And 
my wife is coming with me. She's taking the course too. Okay. A weightlifter and a DPT. So I like to see her perspective on things too. Like, you know, as a physical therapist, mm-hmm. you look at things differently. So I'd be learning mm-hmm. from them, teaching me the course. And then I want to dive into her approach to Caliban, learn from her too. Oh, okay. Oh, you guys must have some crazy conversations at the house. <laughs> Let's call them conversation. They get pretty heated every once in a while. We try to keep them polite, you know? Yeah, yeah. Two two perspectives kind of clashing, I'm sure, sometimes yeah. on that. So, um, no, it is interesting. I've, I've talked with so many physical therapists and uh, from learning from Gray Cook on that side of it. Of That's why I think the strong first, especially the level one, the principles of it is so big because it is movement quality and pushing your strength really married together in both of them. And they're not adversaries of each other. They really bring them together. So, um, oh, that's good. Well, by the time this comes out, hopefully I'll give you a shout out of passing through all of your credentials and now you're an SFG one. So that's great. So yeah, well, dude, I mean, the last couple of times that we talked, I mean, we went deep into, uh, you know, a lot of the work with eccentric training, with the research that you were doing, on that, which was awesome. Um, listeners, if you haven't listened to that before, the Breakthrough Secrets podcast, we had Antonio on a couple different times where we went in. But, you know, recently, what I'd love to start with here, because um, some of the work that you're doing is adapting Verdashensky's work um, in English. That's going to be a worldwide course, you know, coming up. And I know you had Professor Natalia on relatively recently that yep. you were posted, which must have been a phenomenal conversation oh, as man. well on that like podcast. A life changing experience. So, mm-hmm. I've been, let's say, a fan of Erkuzhansky since mm-hmm. I can remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you that, but um, when I first uh, joined uh, university in Italy, when I was like 19, uh, my mom took me to a bookstore downtown where we used to live, and she offered to buy me a book just as a, like a gift for the upcoming semester. And she, she said, just choose a book that is like pertinent to like strength training or physiology or whatever. So you can start learning something before school starts. Mm-hmm. And I remember just randomly, I could have chosen any book. There were like physiology books, anatomy mm-hmm. books, all the classics. But I ended up picking up this book from Verkozhansky that was there from like 1986 or yeah. something. <laughs> and that was my very first book, the very first book I've ever read about strength training. Mm-hmm. And that was a massive, massive imprinting on my like entire development as a coach. Because once you... I make that analogy like once you drive a Ferrari, everything else is going to be a slow car. Okay. Once you read Verkozhansky, everything else is going to be like somewhat easier and like mm-hmm. more simple than what true science is when it comes to strength training. Yeah. That's, so a good, a- that's a good that's a good analogy of it, of the Ferrari. And the, uh, because I've I've dabbled in some of the research just from, uh, you know, going on uh, online and seeing it. And you need to be in a headspace to really understand oh, yeah. all that work because he goes so deep into that. Yeah. And since then, I've been like eager to consume everything he has ever published because I'm lucky that uh, Professor Verkozhansky moved from Russia to Italy in the late 80s. And Natalia, um, his daughter, followed him. And they both learned Italian. They both worked for the Italian National Olympic Committee. They both uh, taught in Italy for university. So they, they're very, they, Professor Verkozhansky was, Natalia still is very fluent in Italian. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand Russian. She okay. speaks enough English to get her point across, but Italian is the real glue that helps us to communicate. Oh, okay. So now we're thanks to uh, Joseph Johnson from Ultimate Athlete Concept who connected us. Uh, we we've been now working together for the last, I want to say eight to twelve months regularly, mm-hmm. twice a week on a weekly basis. 
Mm -hmm. And I've been reviewing everything Professor Berkoshaski has ever written in Italian, English, and Russian. From blogs to books to articles to posts. Like I also had access to some books that were never published. Mm -hmm. They were used by the Italian Olympic Committee as manuals, but they were never released to the public. So new research, newer research, meaning that, of course, it's dated, but has never been published. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing, we're just putting it all together in... um, a series of certifications mm-hmm. uh, that are going to be diving into there are three main areas. One area is just foundation of special strength training for sport. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much periodization and periodized resistance training for sport. Uh, and what I like about it is that it's very specific for elite level athletes. So like the approach that you use when you, when you really are working with the best of the best, because that what Verkozhansky did, he worked with, gold medalists at the Olympics, you know, so mm-hmm. good athletes. And then you're going to be learning a bit about, about like plyometrics and a little bit about a block training system, which is block periodization to yep. make it simple. Mm-hmm. And then we have two more certifications that are, be, that are going to be coming up later on next year. One is entirely dedicated to just periodization. So how to organize training over one year and eventually over four years for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Another one is entirely dedicated to uh, the shock method. So advanced plyometrics for athletes. And it's going to be, I think, I mean, nothing like that has ever been done before. Uh, there are a few blogs or a few interviews that you can find in English, but an official certification approved by Natalia Verkozhansky has never been published. And that's the first time. See, like I, I was on the other side too. I learned Verkozhansky just by reading his books. Yeah. no one explaining them to me mm-hmm. Italian and in English. And I, I agree with you. They're difficult books. Mm-hmm. Like if you pick up super training, man, I've read that book, maybe easy a dozen times, if not more. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say I cried on that book. Like I just couldn't wrap my head around concepts. And like, I, I just thought I couldn't understand them, you know, and wow. for me to be able to digest that with her help to make it understandable and, digestible for everyone in the strength mm-hmm. and conditioning community, I think it's going to be a game changer because what you find in those books, I mean, you find articles and research published in the seventies mm-hmm. on post-activation potentiation, which is a brand new topic. You find research on velocity-based training, which we claim it's a new topic has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you find research on <clears throat> periodization. So it's very interesting stuff. Wow. Okay. So this, yeah, it's interesting because like so much of this information has been out there and we think now like it just comes out and it's like, oh, it's brand new. It's like, no, it's been out for a while. It's just some of these people have been in the labs for a whole long period of time. Working <coughs> I, rem- I remember going into super train and I, I tried to get into it, but I'm like the work that I was doing, which is more general population kind of entry level athletes. I'm like, I can't wrap my head around this right now. It's so much information and it's so good and it's so great, but it, it's not technically light reading. It's that. not. And yeah. the Soviets have um, used to have an approach to sports science that is a bit different than the one we have nowadays. Nowadays we use a lot of um, like physiology. We use anatomy. We use mm-hmm. biochemistry to explain things and, don't get me wrong, those are very complex sciences, but they, mm-hmm. they can be explained in an easy way for everyone to understand. Mm-hmm. The Soviets used to translate pretty much everything in math and physics. And okay. you either understand those concepts or you don't understand their philosophy. Because everything was very much 
you have to think that the way um, the time when periodization was born in the former Soviet Union is also the same time where all the new theories of modern learning and control were coming out with uh, Professor Nikolai Bernstein, which is considered the father of biomechanics. So mm -hmm. those coaches were not much into just the physiology of adaptation. They were very much into motor control and biomechanics. So they broke everything down in terms of like force, velocity, uh, rate of force, the, lots of physics to mm -hmm. the point that if you read super training, uh, plyometrics is not even called plyometrics, it's called power metric. Right. And they translate everything in terms of force, velocity, mass, and acceleration. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit more difficult to understand if you don't have those foundations. But what we're trying to do is find a way to bridge that gap and make it like more accessible in the meaning that like modern students coming out from school nowadays, they can mm -hmm. still understand what was taught and done 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Gotcha. Okay. So the beginning of the course, as you said, is more of the foundational work, like kind of the intro to periodization. And then yeah. is block periodization in that as well? Or is that kind of at a different, like more advanced, you know, level in the course? There is. So there's um, block. If, if you label block periodization, mm -hmm. that's a terminology that was used by uh, Professor Vladimir Surin in the book that he published in 2006, which is called block periodization. And it's the same approach that um, the Soviets used starting from the 70s. What Verkozhansky used was, uh, I like to call it uh, a precursor of block periodization, which is called okay. block training system, which is very similar, it's nearly identical. What changes is the scale of the intervention. Like block periodization was primarily used with, um, at least at the beginning, endurance athletes. So the okay. blocks were a bit longer and the, the training load were a bit more diluted. Okay. Uh, whereas Verkozhansky, who made large use of what he refers to as concentrated training loads, used much shorter blocks with a much more predominant component of like heavy lifting for power slash speed type of athletes. So they're very similar. And to some extent, they can almost be interchangeable but block periodization uses longer period of times with okay. more uh, multi-directional type of approach, mm -hmm. whereas the block training system is shorter period of times right. and much more concentrated. How short of how short of time usually in the block in the short periods? There are programs out there where athletes do as little as two weeks of heavy lifting, mm -hmm. and then they do. So what is very cool about the block training system, the, the original one is that it uses uh, what is known as long-lasting delayed training effect to minimize training volume. So instead of, we tend to think about the Soviet as they always used to train with like high volume, high intensity, high frequency, is nothing like that. That's what the, like media led us to believe. Hmm. The real programs were actually very short and the frequency was very low because those athletes were mostly practicing on the field. So they were bringing okay. them in the mm -hmm. weight room maybe twice a week for 45 minutes, very heavy. Mm -hmm. And then the remaining of the time was done practicing the sport. Gotcha. Okay. But so they developed was... this system where like strength training happens for just a couple of weeks and it's very heavy. And then for three, four, five weeks, you carry on that benefit of strength training, but you use it to practice your own sport and be more explosive in your own sport. So it's a very interesting, oh. that's why it's called conjugate sequencing. 
because they combine heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. They potentiate the effect of your CNS so you can produce more force. And once you supercompensate, they use that force to develop more power in your sport-specific skills. Wow. So they're essentially doing a couple of weeks of really heavy work in the weight room and then taking time off and just putting those skills into what they're doing on the field. Yes. And it's like that delayed effect is happening over. Wow. That's fast. I never heard that before. Yeah. You don't learn if I haven't learned it from like, I mean, the way I've learned the Soviet system, I've learned mm-hmm. it through the Bulgarian method in weightlifting. Right. And that's popular. Like, oh, you go to the gym three times a day, you kill yourself, you lift mm-hmm. like a ton of weight. <laughs> if you survive, maybe you get stronger. Yeah. Well, some, like res- some restoratives and probably some extracurricular, uh, you know, yeah. substances <laughs> might help with the intensity yeah, of that as well. Huh. Okay. So, so it was only like a couple of days a week, really heavy. So I'm assuming like above 90% type oh, loads yeah. that they oh. were doing for everything, yes. like, you know, like really pushing the max. And then for them, 80 to 90% is actually considered more hypertrophy type of work. Mm-hmm. When they do strength training, usually it's 90 to 97%. So it's very heavy. Wow. Okay. So that's the short blocks of time. And they found, and then with endurance athletes, you said they were doing longer blocks of time. Yes. So opening that up a little bit, but was the intensity drop? I'm assuming the intensity was dropping down in those yes. longer blocks with them. Yeah. You know, like when you work with <clears throat> endurance athletes, uh, the, mm-hmm. the type of um, physiological adaptation that you're looking for is much more demanding than just simple muscle hypertrophy. I'm not saying that getting bigger and muscle hypertrophy is, is easy, it's still very difficult to get. Mm-hmm. But you're just looking at your contractile proteins within your muscle, and they used to adapt very fast. When you look at endurance athletes, they need uh, they need more blood vessels, they need more enzymes, they need more mitochondria. Uh, it's it's more complex and it's more time consuming. So blocks have to be a bit longer. Hmm. Okay, I wonder if like during that time, if they did any like even just like movement prep based work at all, of just like very light, almost easy strength based work of movements in there, or did they just completely just stop? training and just focus on the, the work on the field and those short, short, intense blocks. There, there are situations where they completely stop any technical yeah. work, mm-hmm. or if not, they kept it extremely light and like mostly like almost like a recovery session. Like you eat the gym very heavy and mm-hmm. then your lighter day may be some sort of like skill type of work. Okay. Do you think that's really best for specific sports? Like things more like, would it be something like American football or like, or soccer? Like who do you think would benefit the most from those short period? So those short, short block periodizations. That's a great question. And what I would have learned from uh, Verkozhansky original approach is that it's not a question of what sport you're working with, but what level of athletes you're working in. Because mm-hmm. for this approach to work, uh, the underlying condition, the underlying assumption is that your skill is extremely solid and is extremely consolidated. So you're very, very good at your sport. Okay. So you can take time, you can take time off maybe a couple of weeks from practicing your skill and your skill is not going to deteriorate. It's going to be gotcha. there. Mm-hmm. If you are not quite there yet and you're in that limbo where like you're still catching up with your technique and you're still mastering it, mm-hmm. probably it's not the best approach to go. Okay. Before elite level athletes, I mean, we're talking about like these program programs were developed with athletes who at least had already won a national championship. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, they were probably training for world championship and Olympics. So they were the best of the best. 
Okay. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a question of what sport you're doing. It's just the level that you've achieved already in that sport. So you have Very the, aware, so. you have the awareness, you kind of built your nervous system around those movements of what you're doing yes. in that. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So 99% of the people need to build up to this level first <laughs> before we get it to, well, I know, I mean, so much work that you have done is with periodization, you know, and I know you've got some other programs that you're doing with stronger experts of getting into periodization and cert. And periodization is just an interesting topic because I've had some people say that they don't believe in it, which is kind of like, and I can see from the smile that you have on your face that you've had these conversations as well. But can you can you just maybe just explain a little bit of just kind of the grassroots of like what periodization really means and why it's so beneficial for athletes to do in the weight room? Yeah, I, I beg you to stop me if I take it too long because this can go on okay. for hours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit my drink here and just <laughs> let you go. So I'm going to share with you what I've personally, I'm going to take all my opinions away. I'm just going to tell you what I've learned from just reviewing articles and <laughs> studies done in the last 20 or so years. Um, if you look at um, mostly meta-analysis, so studies of studies, it shows that periodization, periodization, which means nothing more than just organizing training over time, that's what periodization means. There's not like, any connotation attached to it. it doesn't have to be linear, nonlinear. Periodization simply means organizing your training over time for a goal. Your goal is to pick for a certain event. You schedule your training, you organize your training. That's what periodization is. Every study that you can go and review shows that if you were to compare all these different types of periodization approach, they all work better than non-periodized training, which means that as long as you organize your training, and you do that in a way that follows the principles of physiology and human anatomy and biomechanics, your results are gonna be better than not organizing training. Now, when it comes to what type of periodization works best, that becomes a question of what athlete you're working with, what's your schedule and what's your sport? Because there's not a single approach to periodization that works for everyone. One thing that I would like to uh, bring to uh, our listeners' attention is that and that's something that I have been guilty for for the last 20 years. And I think a lot of us, because that's how we learn things in school or courses. If you think about, um, if you think about periodized training in general, it's easier to understand that with strength training, but it's the same thing for skill development or conditioning or endurance. We based, uh, we base our interventions on the principle of, on the, on the principles of general adaptation syndrome. So we, 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 look at our training intervention as a stressor and our body will adapt to that stressor, super compensating and getting better. Now, what I've learned, I've learned this from Natalia Berkoshaski herself. Like, so it's something that I've learned in the last year, year and a half. And since I've been using it with a few of athletes that I'm coaching, man, has been the greatest game changer I've ever experienced in my life. Wow, really? Like, I wish I'd known that like 20 years ago because I would have done things completely different. Mm -hmm. So if you go out of your way for a second and you pull out the original paper where uh, Sally described the general adaptation syndrome that we use today with the alert phase, the resistant phase and the exhaustion phase, that was based on, first of all, an animal study. They use rats for that type of um, intervention, so no humans. Mm -hmm. But one thing that no one has ever told me before, and I think I can share this with everyone else in my profession, because I think we never learned that in school, is that 
that study was designed and applied in a way where what, what, what they were looking for was pathological adaptation and all the rats using the study died at the end of the protocol. So that model was built to push those bodies, those physiological system to the level of their capacity. So there was always an adaptation followed by exhaustion. So they never actually kept improving over time. They improved at the beginning, but then they crashed and they died. So everything they were exposed to, whether there was like, uh, like drugs or physical training, eat stress, whatever stressor they were exposed to was always the highest amount of stress they could tolerate without dying. And that's not what we do with athletes. And there has been an alternative model of adaptation that has mm-hmm. been out since 1957. So a long time. Yeah. And the reason why that's a shame for our community, but the reason why it has never been published is because the three researchers that worked on it were all females and female were not considered to be good scientists in the former Soviet Union and the international community. And their research has been there for 50 years and has been backed up since then by hundreds of studies on immunology and immune system. So their research was, was much more solid and much more grounded to what we do in strength and conditioning than Saley's original model. And this approach to periodized training calls for the minimum amount of stress to create adaptation. Mm -hmm. So you're, and that's some of the former Soviet Union, like coaches were already using it, but never made it to the general public to be adopted as that's what we do in training. Mm -hmm. But the way they used to design training was like, extreme low frequency, extreme low intensity, just enough to trigger what they were looking at was a, a response from your immune system. They want your immune system to be primed and activated, but never brought to the edge of burning out. So you were always far below your threshold, far below your level, but what was predominant was a more consistent approach over time. Right. And since I've started using it and I've changed it, I've changed the way I approach my percentages to training, uh, working set and all the main variables that affect stress as a whole, I've had amazing, amazing results. So I invite everyone to like, this material will be made available so everyone can just read the research is out there. You don't have to believe me, they don't have to believe anyone. It's just, it's research that's available. It's a complete game changer. Like you start rethinking about, well, like, if I can get full adaptation with two sets instead of 10 sets of a certain exercise, why would I go to 10 sets? Because that's what I've been told to do. Let's just do what works at the bare minimum, but let's do them consistently over time. And that's what's going to drive adaptation without tilting into exhaustion. Because once you bring an athlete to exhaustion, that means eating a plateau, whatever you want to call it. The next step is overreaching. The next step is overtraining. Once you get there, everything you've done pretty much is gone, like is wasted. This approach allows you to train for a longer period of times, Mm -hmm. avoiding that stall and that tipping over into like exhaustion. So you just keep progressing over and over and over, over time. The only limitation is that compared to our traditional approach, we used to do more. We used to get a more noticeable improvement immediately but that leads to exhaustion over time. Uh, okay. This approach is a bit more conservative. So you need to give yourself more grace and more time to see change. Mm-hmm. 
But once it happens, you have it, you own it. It's not going to bring you to the edge of overtraining. Wow. Okay. I can't believe this information has been out there for 55 years and like yeah. nobody's really like under and nobody's really got to, got to be able to get their hands on it. That's crazy. Was an entire book published that because mm -hmm. we, we see like, if you ever read, um, uh, we're slow to adapting. Yeah. As the culture, <laughs> if you read Medvedev's original book on periodization, which mm -hmm. is the guy that invented, so to speak, linear periodization, the book is just as much as a political manifesto for the former Soviet Union mm -hmm. that it is a science book. So a lot of that was just, there was a heavy cultural influence that we can't understand nowadays. But in that field, it was a lot of politics, a lot of hate between people, a lot of like personal agenda that people had to follow mm -hmm. to get their point across. So a lot of the information that we have access to has been skewed by those factors, you know, outside okay. factors. Mm -hmm. and this good research that was there was just never politically friendly and never came to the surface. Yeah. It's and so crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy just because when you actually just take a couple minutes and just think through the layers of it and not just take your first initial response, it just makes 100% total sense of dropping it down because the ultimate goal as you said is to adapt to have your body adapt which is getting stronger you know building more power getting more endurance and it's funny it's bringing me back to uh my memories when i first read and uh worked with pavel and dan john on easy strength which is like yeah. a similar kind of concept of going down of dropping your percentages down of working it on a day-by-day -day basis and what happens after 40 days of doing that wow you get stronger it's like yeah. but you don't feel like that instant gratification or like those instant results right off the bat yeah. from doing something so heavy but you don't have to you know go down the rabbit hole of you know you know getting on the tightrope of overtraining and possibly you know go off uh you know go off the deep end i remember and please correct me if i'm wrong on this because i'm not um super expert on kettlebell yet until i get the course done <laughs> But uh, I remember um, long before this even happened, like I, I read this type of research, I remember listening to, um, I, I want to say probably was a podcast with uh, Joe Rogan and Pavel mm -hmm. together. Yep. And Pavel was explaining how, again, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but his preferred approach to progressive overloading was not like increasing a certain percentage over time regularly, but stick to a percentage until it gets easier and then eventually go up. Yes. Like, yeah. I remember him saying something like, you should be able to, if you do three sets of three with 100 kilos today and you're tired, mm -hmm. until you can do that with a smile and relax, you're not adapted yet. Yes. That was, uh, and Pavel in, so eloquently in that, I remember broke down. I believe that's a Russian style of periodization. Yes. Where, and that's why, you know, Pavel, I think Pavel will joke about having the small little weights in the, the you know, the, the, um, you know, uh, you know, just the baby weights in the gym, because those big jumps, it kind of in a couple of ways, one, it's, it's, you have to kind of take a leap of faith if you're going yeah. to jump up, you know, of going into that weight, but also it's your body hasn't adapted yet. Like doing 32 kilo versus 34, your body's not going to really, you yeah. know, adapt, but you know, when going into something like a heavy press, you know, doing a 32 K to a 36 or a 36 to a 40, that's a big enough jump for like a single arm military press that, you really need to own that bell below that in order to make that jump up. So it kind of, you're not trying to trick your body into progressive overload. Like you're really earning that progressive overload yeah. with those heavier weights. And that's exactly what the Soviets were doing mm -hmm. at a more practical level. 
it's just the mass media type of like communication that was coming out was a completely different approach was the one that like everyone has to be progressively more intense mm-hmm. and the, the kind of periodization we all learned so there was like a disconnection between what they were preaching and what they were actually doing and i think mm-hmm. i feel like now everything is coming to the surface so we have better access thanks to like even Pavel himself because he mm-hmm. did a phenomenal job making a lot of good research available for us too yeah i always use the analogy of the highway you know it's like we all want to get into the left lane and go as fast as possible with that ferrari but it's like if you go in the right lane and you hit it on cruise control you're going to be able to go a lot faster and it's a lot safer for the long duration and if you're talking with you know you're talking especially with the the demographic we're talking about with elite athletes it's like you know an elite athlete needs the gym to get better at their sport on the field it's like if they're getting injured in the weight room or doing too much there you're thought process is completely ass backwards on it. And, uh, you know, I think that's really where it's interesting. So, I mean, even people with general population, you can take these things into account in your own training from the mindset of an elite level athlete is using that to build it up for everything else. And you said when, when you learn this and then you change your approach, you know, with your athletes and you drop the percentages down, what percentages were you using now more for a kind of more of a continuous program? Was it going down to 50%? Were you doing more of like a 70%, 80% or? I, I've changed it in a way where, um, well, I've done a lot of that work uh, in combination with um, velocity-based training. But the way I use that is I don't really want to con- necessarily control for velocity. I want to find, let's say I'm doing strength training. And normally strength training falls within 0.5 to 0.8 meter per second. If you look at average bar velocity, I pick a a point in between, let's call it like 0.6 meter per second. And I'll try to find the most comfortable way for that athlete to move at that velocity for sets of like three repetitions. Gotcha. And I stay at that weight until the velocity goes above one. I simply don't change it. And I keep doing it over uh, time, keeping very little volume so that let's say I'm, I'm, I'm very much comfortable now with myself. If I go into the weight room and I say, okay, today I want to eat three sets of three in my back squat at 150 kilos moving at 0.6. If at the end of my first set, my velocity drops, I'm completely okay saying, okay, like I'm, I'm getting tired mm. for today is too heavy. Let's call it a day. Let's go home and rest. Let's come back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've, I've implemented more what technology allows us to do today, which is controlling and tracking training adaptation. Yes. So that I only do what is needed when it's needed and when I can adapt to it. If it, if it becomes a stressor, I just get out of the way and focus on resting, you know? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's, we're not focusing on the weight that you're lifting and just completing the lift, we're focused on the velocity of how quickly you're getting to. And that's really going into more of not just the strength development, but the power development. Yes. Because in the end, like po- mechanical power is what quantifies the amount of effort you're putting into your lifts. Mm-hmm. Like what, even if you're moving the bar slower than what you'd be needing to move it for power, which is above one, mm-hmm. the fact that you're trying to get the greatest weight at the greatest velocity you can possibly manage, that equals greater power. So there's more demand on your system. And that's what triggers adaptation. All these studies that I've read, they, they found a very nice link between mechanical power and immune response. So it's not just the way that you lift, it's the way that you lift at the speed that you're moving it 
that creates the overall stress that leads to adaptation. So it might not be that you're specifically working on power because your velocity may be below the threshold, but just because you're working with the right way at the right velocity, so that for that particular loading condition, your power is maximized, that's enough for you to drive adaptation. Wow. Okay. This stuff is so awesome. Um, so if somebody, so you kind of look around that like 0.6 and then if it gets yeah. up to one, that's like the time that then we progress from there. Do you have a process that you use of, okay, now we've hit one. Now we're going to increase the load. Is there a certain percentage that you're increasing it? Or is you're just looking at what's the next 0.6 again? What's the next 0.6? Okay. So it's a constant, like that's something that I've learned too from uh, Verkoshansky's manual. Um, it refers to the difference between periodized training and programming or mm -hmm. programming you're constantly testing and adjusting based on the way the athlete responds. So let's say that like I got to the point that I started doing squats at 100 kilos at 0 0.6 meter per second. And now I can move 100 kilos at one meter per second. So I'm good. I want to go up. I, I need to know exactly how much I can go up for me to bring it back to 0 0.6. So I will test the athlete again find the, the sweet spot of the way that I can handle for three reps and then keeps the same progression over and over again until I'll move that, which is very similar to what like Bondarchuk does too. If you look at like Bondarchuk's approach to strength training, okay, he eyeballs it. Like it doesn't measure velocity, but it's the same, same approach. So right. it's something that has been around for a while. It's nothing like I invented or anyone in, in invented. It's right. just the way the approach to uh, periodized resistance training has changed and developed and evolved over time. Gotcha. Okay. Now with this program too, like you mentioned, like doing this, let's say with the back squat or so, are you using specific exercises and drills for this only? Like, are you doing like, uh, is it for Olympic weightlifting? Are you doing kind of powerlifting work? Or are you also doing this for other things like even unilateral work or accessory work that you're doing too? I think I'm, I, I, there, there are many different waves or ways of going about it, but my favorite one is the way I look at it is that um, for something to be, for an exercise or a drill to be beneficial for an athlete, unless you're looking for muscle hypertrophy. So let's take muscle hypertrophy out of the equation mm -hmm. for a second. Okay. If you're looking for force, rate of force development, power development, uh, balance, coordination, all those like, I like to call them soft skills just because they involve more of your brain than just your muscles. Uh, you need to do them in a condition where you're fresh and you can focus on what you're doing. So mm -hmm. if your main emphasis for the workout is heavy lifting for that particular day, I think you can, you can do maybe a little bit of prep work leading up to your heavy sets of squats, mm -hmm. but the real, the, the real core element for that session would be your heavy lifting so i try to keep that on its own and then on other days where like i might be carrying over some muscle soreness or a little bit of fatigue but overall i'm more rested i like to put in very short sessions where i work on all the accessory work so single single side work mm -hmm. um maybe some light impact plyometrics corrective type exercises all those things that overall are not going to stress my system a lot, gotcha. but they're going to okay. be beneficial to like filling the gaps, but I'll mm -hmm. keep them separated because I want to use those sessions so that my athletes can be fresh and ready to learn also mm -hmm. what they're doing. Whereas 
if you look at every studies published in the last 10, 20, 10 15 years, they show the same thing. If you go through a period of heavy lifting, your rate of force development is going to be uh, downregulated for a long period of time because your CNS is fatigued. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. you, you still can perform at your, at your best, not even if you try to. Mm-hmm. So if you can develop power the way you should, it's almost pointless to train for power, you know? Because exactly. you're just going to be doing things that are not going to make you any faster or any stronger. Mm-hmm. So if you work on strength, focus on strength, and do the side work on balance, coordination, and so far and so forth. But when you switch and you start working on power, then your athletes have to be fresh and ready to go every time you train them. Yeah. I love this message on this because it's like the, the, the physical side of it, of the adaptation that you're looking for of power development in there. Like a lot of times we see in programs of like, we're just adding stuff almost for the sake of adding stuff on top of it. But I think like the cherry on top of the Sunday here too, on kind of the mental side that I found with athletes and even personally myself if you know you're going to do those other things on another day, I think you can focus even more on that specific day of what you're trying to do. Because I know like personally of getting into heavy barbell work, if I know that I have to do a bunch of other stuff afterwards, like you can get in your own mind as well of maybe pushing through that and you're not really focusing in on that development as much as possible. So I think just splitting those two just for the mindset of the athlete might have even an effect that we're not even talking about. Absolutely. And um, I hope I'm, I'm not going off a tangent, but like mm-hmm. the way I, I like to look at it is like, you know, your ability to focus on something is very limited. Like, and it's very discreet. You can only focus on certain things, limited number of things per unit of time. You can't focus on everything. Otherwise you get sidetracked yes. and distracted. So there's a mental component to it where like, if you only have a few things to worry about, you're probably going to be able to focus more on them. Mm-hmm. instead of being like diluted over too many skills. But also what I've found recently on, um, and I've learned that from studies that are not, um, they don't come from our background of strength and conditioning. They come more for like the physical therapy type of word, mm-hmm. but nevertheless are extremely helpful, I think. And they show that um, if, you, if you become physically stronger over time, that means that, for the same effort required, you need less demand on your brain to complete that task because you perceive it as less challenging. And that opens up resources for your brain to focus on other things. So that's why sometimes I like to keep the strength work very concentrated in just a short period of time, get in, get stronger, and then use that strength to deal with the tasks that we have to deal with in sports, which are very like complex sports-specific skills. And being able to cope with them at a higher level of efficiency because now our brain is more keen to do so because physically we're stronger. Yes, exactly. That's, yeah, I think that's like the free will thing that I talked about. It's like we only have so much free will. It's a finite resource in there. So if you have to think about all these different things that you're doing all the time, it's going to take away from the focus of something else. It's just naturally how it goes. I've you know, always used the analogy of the gas tank. It's like you have a full tank of gas at the beginning of the day and everything that you do, every decision that you have to make, it's taking that energy down a little bit yeah. from there. So um, no, I think that's, yeah, no, I think that's actually right on point. One of the things I wanted to kind of segue a little bit into here is uh, because one of the first times we talked, you mentioned a case study that you had with an athlete, I think it was in track and field, where kind of took his whole program 
and just started crossing shit out, like all the stuff that was unnecessary that they needed to do and really just got them down into a couple of drills. Yep. And then the the development, the power development and the skills and what he did on the field afterwards were just, you know, huge. Listeners, if you want to go back, that's the first uh, podcast that uh, we did with Antonio a while ago. Um, but the question I had for you on that is it seems like that's such a big thing with athletes is that they're doing so much stuff. And I'm wondering if it's, are they doing things that, yeah, technically they're decent exercises, but it's just, they're doing so much volume of it that it's not really benefiting them. Or is it just, there's so many exercises out there that are overrated that just don't really give, you know, the total benefit of what we're trying to do with power development. So I don't know if I phrased that exactly right, you know, for you, but um, I'd love to get your take on that. I think, um, so I was, I don't remember who it was, but I was talking with um, someone who trained under um, Louis Simmons, a Westside Barbell. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just bringing this up because it's, it's probably very similar to the topic that we're going to be diving into in just a mm-hmm. moment. He said that um, at his gym, it doesn't necessarily use his, like, it doesn't necessarily use uh, devices to track for velocity. Mm-hmm. It just looks at lifters when they're squatting or where they're deadlifting or where they're bench pressing and just based off the intensity and the effort that they put in every lift, it decides whether or not they're going to do two sets or 10 sets. So if he sees an athlete that is like fully committed in tune with his body, pushing every little inch of every single rep along the way, he might just stop at two sets, two sets of three, you're done. If he sees an athlete who might have the same relative intensity on the bar, but is not fully committed and the amount of effort is not quite there, he does three, four, five, maybe 10 sets of the same exercise to get the same level of stress. And what I've liked about that example is that it all comes down to not how many exercises you have and how much time you have, is how efficient can you be when you exercise, when you train. If you're very efficient and you you can, on, on request, you can express the highest amount of power, you can move at your greatest velocity, or you can output the greatest amount of force you're capable of, mm-hmm. then all these extra exercises are completely useless. You can just focus on the basics and do them well and do them right, which for me, and I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm an extreme purist. My bases are very limited. Like yeah. I squat, I jump, mm-hmm. and if I'm lucky... <laughs> I either clean or I pick up an heavy kettlebell yeah. and do some get-ups. You, you'll, do yeah, you'll fit right in with the kettlebell community. So <laughs> I'm extremely basic. Like I, I, can, I can't even remember last time I, I even programmed like a bench press for someone. Mm-hmm. Like I go as far as maybe pull-ups in the off season for like shoulder health, but that's okay. about it. So mm-hmm. I'm very, very basic. Maybe you don't have to be that basic, but you can still be focusing on – I like to look at them like not in terms of like how many exercises you have available – is how many physical qualities you need to develop and use the bare minimum for each. So you need strength, you need rate of force development, uh, you need speed and power output. So those three, once you have, and maybe you need like some core slash structural type strength. Okay. So once you put in at least one exercise each within a microcycle, whether that is like four days or a week worth of training, if you can really dedicate your entire commitment to all those exercises, your volume would be extremely little and extremely limited. Hmm. But on the other hand, if you can reach that level of commitment and intensity, uh, then additional exercises become helpful because they can fill in the gap where like 
they're not too intense that you can still do them. They mm -hmm. just reiterate more work where you can right. express the level of intensity. So that's why you see people doing more than one plyometric exercise, or you see them doing like squatting and maybe deadlifting as well, or they do mm -hmm. uh, maybe like a snatch and then they end up with some weightlifting derivatives as well. Right. Like it's not useless per se. It's only useless if in those core exercises you already expressed your greatest physical effort possible for that loading condition. And it all comes down to like, my, my biggest takeaway from everything I've learned so far is that when you look at everything that is neuromuscular, so mm -hmm. force, rate of force development, power, impulse, everything that involves your brain to a larger extent, you need to keep your athletes fresh and rested. When you train them in a state of fatigue, you're just chipping away from adaptation that over time is going to lead you to overtrain. Yeah. So, so, there, so you mentioned something there, like with Louis Simmons, with like the eyeball test that yeah. they're looking to kind of see if it there. That's an interesting thing. And I'm just, here's my thing that this might be a slippery slope of that. It's because, you know, high level athletes and, you know, athletes, and some are much better at hiding the effort that they're putting into it than others. So I think I understand where they're coming from on that, because, you know, just as a coach of, you know, of a kettlebell coach for over a decade, I've seen a million swings before that, like you just kind of do eyeball, like, okay, this person, they need to go up and wait in order to get this. It's like, you just naturally have it, you know, you build those reference point on it. But I think when you're talking with elite athletes on this, like the periodization and putting the science behind it is so important because yeah. you could be dealing with, I mean, you're dealing with somebody's life. I mean, any, that's the thing with coaching. Yeah. I mean, we're putting people through un, under load, you know, from there. So like having that, I think it's a good skill skill maybe to have in your back, but any coaches listening, I'd be cautious just to throw your eyeball test out there right off the bat, follow these other things first, and then build that up for a period of time. Absolutely. And at the same time, I would also be cautious in just completely and exclusively rely on technologies as well. Yes. Like I think there's always an optimum compromise, which is a bit of uh, your, your eyeballing skills. Let's call mm -hmm. it that way. A little bit of like our data that comes from technology and the glue is your experience as a coach. When you can put them two together and look at the overall pro uh, like program you're putting your athletes through, then you can make educated decisions of what to do next. And I give you an example that I experienced on myself. I don't know if we talked about that in the past, but uh, early on during the pandemic, I was, I, 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 before the pandemic, I'd been using um, an RA variability tracking device uh, for a very long period of time. So I've, I've been tracking my heart rate variability over maybe like six to eight months before the pandemic even started. When the pandemic started, I picked up more um, endurance training, so running mm -hmm. and, and biking. And I was able to do that in a way that over like two or three months, I was able to be more often in the green than in the red or the yellow. So I was, my level of readiness was almost always ready for a workout. So I, okay. I fine-tuned my programming to get there, which was great. I, it was just an experiment. I tried to do that. That, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that's what everyone needs to do. Being in the yellow, being in the red is good every once in a while for adaptation. But that's mm -hmm. what I was trying to do. And I was trying to do that for a reason, because once I found that balance of like the right amount of frequency and volume I needed to train, get better, but constantly be ready for a workout, I threw in on the intermittent fasting that I was doing, I threw in some... Uh, ketogenic diet. So I went without oh, carbohydrates okay. for a prolonged period of time. 
Mm-hmm. And what I've realized is that at that point, the discrepancy between my external load and my internal load became exponential to the point that by Friday, my uh, tracking device said that I wasn't the green because I was doing everything the same. And I was like, I adjusted my intensity accordingly to stay in the green, but my muscles were so depleted by Friday that I couldn't even go out and just do a mile running because I was spent. Mm. So that tells you that like you can't constantly rely on technology to tell you what to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Technology can only measure that much. Mm-hmm. But if you know the athlete, you know what type of diet they're going through, what type of training, what type of stressors they're going through, through that you can make educated decisions and say, okay, you might be ready to go today because your velocity is on point or your heart rate variability is on point. But I know that you're fatigued because you had finals this week or you didn't eat mm-hmm. enough or you broke up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever the case may be. Factors that those devices can't control for. That's yes. where your experience comes into place. So you have to bring everything together, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting thing with the technology because it's so ready now and it can give us so much information. I think it does more good than harm, but I've I've mentioned the same thing, especially with ones that track your sleep progress, um, where because a lot of times if you're just looking at technology to tell you what to do, it's like all of a sudden you might have said, oh, I feel I slept great. But then all of a sudden you look at your Fitbit and it says that you slept crappy. It's going to tell you, oh, you slept crappy. You're supposed to feel crappy, even though you're feeling great right off the bat. So it's like, it's, you know, take them for, yeah, get the data. And I think that's great, but also kind of listening to your body. That's where some of the stuff like that I learned from Adam Glass and Frankie Ferris with the biofeedback training and intuitive training, which they're huge on as uh of the rep speed, you know, of like knowing where your rep speed is. And that's really going to be the biomarker of your training for that day. As soon as your rep speed slows down, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation that we talked about, but going on this, Antonio, I want to talk, we'll we'll call this segment a little overrated versus underrated on here. So, because I think everybody's always got some opinions on it. Do you think there are some drills that you think and found are overrated that people are doing constantly in athletic development that just like, no, this is, this is not, this is a bridesmaid, not a bride. <laughs> yes. And I'll, uh, I'll try to be extremely polite and correct. <laughs> going to throw some, get some DMS thrown in your Instagram. Right <laughs> yes. Here. So you I can already see that. Happening. <laughs> uh, there are at least in the strength and conditioning community, mm-hmm three drills or exercises that I constantly see being used. And I'm not here to say they're right or wrong. I just, my personal opinion is they're extremely overrated. At least that are, and I'll explain why to attach the reason to my, my, my thinking process. Um, box jumps, hip thrusts, and everything that involves the landmines slash cables type of presses. So like all the variations of exercise were like, you put someone on a single leg stance, but then you rely on a landmine or on a cable to all balance and push weights. Mm. And my reason behind these three exercises being overrated is very simple. It's not about the exercise itself is what leads athletes to do if they don't do that correctly, that can become potentially harmful. Uh, Box jumps are great on and off itself. They're great exercise. They're extremely useful. The problem is that if you don't coach them correctly 
and athletes starts to jump, bringing their knees up to the sky just in order to land to a taller box. Well, you're not, you're not developing any more power because the displacement of their center of gravity is going to be the same. So if you want to do box jump, do them, but then coach them correctly. Mm-hmm. Don't shoot for a super tall box. If to get there, all you're doing is just bringing your knees to your chest and landing because okay. it defeats mm-hmm. the purpose. And then if that's the, again, we go back to efficiency. If that's the only exercise you do for power development, well, mm-hmm. you're not efficient. So you're wasting your time, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ip thrusts, um, just the loading pattern of an ip thrust. Ip thrusts are great to develop glutes and hamstrings and everything mm-hmm. that comes with it. They're a great um, injury prevention exercise. They're wonderful in rehabilitation. However, just the way, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to go down and into biomechanics and start breaking down moments and torque and everything. Just be intuitive. I see people that can hip thrust five, 600 pounds, but they can barely deadlift 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. So that tells you there's something in that exercise. There's an imbalance. Artificially <laughs> creating a positive moment arm for you to lift a lot of weight, but clearly it doesn't translate into overall functional structural strength. Yes. So it might be great to develop, again, if your goal is uh, butt hypertrophy, let's call it that way, or hamstring hypertrophy, mm-hmm. yeah, might be great. Gains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, booty gains. <laughs> but you don't have to go that heavy. You can just contextualize that within your hypertrophy type of work and you'll mm-hmm. be fine. So see, there's no good or bad. It's yes. all very dependent on the, the context with, uh, within you moving. Mm-hmm. And the last one is all those... I see a lot of very cool, fancy exercise, which I love to see, and they're very brilliant the way they're designed, but they use either cables or, or, or elastic bands on the landmine to do like a single stance type of exercise where you're like pressing or you're pulling or you're rowing or whatever the case may be. Now, if you put someone on a single leg stance, uh, you want to train them unilateral, that's for sure. But there's, there has to be, unless that person has hard time balancing or they have hard time coordinating, so they're beginners, if they're capable of doing so, and then you put them on a single leg stance, but you create an external support that take the balance away from the exercise, all that functional component is gone. So you would rather just do more simple exercises on one leg with less mm-hmm. load, but still coach that balance and that coordination instead of creating fancy exercises that are leading nowhere because you put someone on a leg, what you're doing by putting them on one leg, you're limiting their loading capacity. And normally you you would do that because it's a compromise for you to train balance and coordination, Mm -hmm. but you're also taking balance and coordination away from the picture because you're giving them a point of support. So the old exercise, you know, so those three exercises I think are, Definitely. Again, they're not wrong and they're not bad. They're just way overrated for what they're useful for. Exactly. And I, th- I think you just put that so perfectly on all those. So there's no hate on that at all. So no, it's, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with especially the landmine stuff, because I've seen some incredible benefits of doing some things from people like tall kneeling kind of press work of kind of getting that position, especially with hockey players who are just hitting the board so much. That was a good drill. But with single leg work, it's so interesting because obviously we know that unilateral training is really good, yeah. but so many people have taken it to mean that we can create every possible exercise in a single leg. When in reality, if you just take probably a kettlebell and do some single leg deadlifts, you're going to get everything from a unilateral perspective in there, get a little bit of you know frontal plane 
of motion and get a little side to side and you're going to get everything that you need you know Absolutely. single leg uh, by default what does is uh, it makes up it makes up for a very small base of support which mm-hmm. takes away stability when you take away stability you take away loading you can't mm-hmm. load if you're unstable so strength is no longer your main goal when you do those exercise or like yep. absolute strength is not your main goal anymore it's more of like structural strength core strength coordination stability all those good things that are so valuable for athletes mm-hmm. but you need to be in a situation where you can actually develop them so like for instance like a single leg pistol squat with kettlebell that's great mm-hmm. or yeah. like because you have to balance yourself you put some overloading and there's some like lateral and sagittal component to it yep. but getting too fancy and then try to compensate with external supports just to get that loading too it's just trying to get something out of the exercise that is not meant to be there, you know? Right. You know, it's funny with the pistol squat because that was one that I went back and forth in my head so long as if overrated and underrated because a lot of people love to do it and you need some hamstring mobility at the same time to do that. But airborne lunges, I found, is one of the best exercises to do, you know, aside from that, like the combination of uh, if anybody's going into a bodyweight type course, single leg deadlifts and airborne lunges combined together are so phenomenal because so many people want to do pistol squats, but if you don't have that mobility in your hip on that, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a long journey to get to full, you know, below parallel on that. We're doing something like an airborne lunge, I think can give a lot of those benefits. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan. Again, I'm biased of being extremely simple, but for me, like just a single leg hop or lips are some of the best thing you can possibly do if you want to improve your rate of force development and balance mm-hmm. of one leg. Limb. You put on some weight, you do a single leg RDL with a kettlebell and you're, you're a pro for me. Perfect. So dude, this hour flew by, man. So it's always great talking to you, man. Like seriously, Thank this you. was, this was awesome. This is one I'm going to be, you know, going back and listening to again. Um, you dropped some awesome stuff here. So um, dude, uh, if people want to consume more of your content, kind of uh, check you out, some of the stuff that's going on, where's the best place that we can send them? Uh, I'm, everything I do, I try to put on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a huge Twitter consumer just because people fight too much on Twitter and I don't like fighting with people, so I stay away from that. Um, I try to share everything I do either with the NCA or my own research or any of these courses we're teaching now, uh, whether that is Stronger Experts or Verkoshansky Institute of Sport. I try to share everything on my Instagram page. Uh, sometimes I get uh, messages that ask if it's me on the page because it has my name, but then you go through the page and it's either pictures of my wife, pictures of my dog, or pictures of a Ferrari car somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's me, believe me, it's me. It's just, I couldn't care less about posting about myself. My oh, wife is great. gorgeous. My dog yes. is cute. I love Ferrari. So I, Ferraris. that's all exactly. I care about. Yeah, that sounds like a good life right there. So yeah. that's awesome. Um, but that's me. And by any yeah. means, if anyone wants to reach out, I'm always mm-hmm. open to share my email, uh, phone number on social yep. media. Just DM me and I'm always down for a conversation. Perfect. Well, dude, um, I'm so excited for all this stuff that you're putting out here. This course sounds amazing. And I'm excited to see it come all the way to fruition. And um. Dude, have a great time at SFG1. Freaking crush it this weekend. And I'll have to have you back on. We'll go over your weekend here and just keep jamming on this. So this was awesome. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So listeners, thank you so much for connecting. If you want to check out more of Antonio's stuff, you know where to do so. I'll catch you on the next one. Bye, everyone. 
Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you came away with great stories and insights that you can use to create more strength and success in your life. Remember now, for a time, you can grab a free copy of the One Day Strength Challenge, the playbook that incorporates proven strength aerobics training along with the skill of intuition to help you create, design, and achieve your perfect training plan that fits around your busy schedule. Just go to www.thebreakthroughsecrets.com and grab your free copy today. It's your life. Make it the strongest possible. Catch you guys later.